Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. So a few weeks ago, I was working in France and I was delivering a presentation about well-being for the modern world. And so I shared a short episode whilst I was in France on this podcast, talking about my presentation, about the things that people were resonating with and the things that people had the most questions about at the end of my presentation. Now, of course, well-being for the modern world is a big topic. It covers the physical, uh, physiological health, mental and emotional health, our social and environmental, uh, our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being, relationships, movement, sleep, diet. This is big. You know, there's lots of things encompassed here. Now, the modern world part was the interesting part because I was talking about what things are influencing us and our physiology, our ability to sleep, our diets, um, our lifestyles, so things like stress. And I was talking about the nervous system and this idea of upregulating your nervous system. So when you want to feel more alert, more awake, focused, ready to respond, to act, to take action and downregulating the nervous system. So when you want to feel karma when your body is in a state where it can rest and digest and recover and so that was something that I was talking about this nervous system and how we can upregulate and downregulate and for some people they have heard about this before and for others they had never heard about this and they kind of were like wow this is really interesting and I want to learn more about it can this help me sleep can this help me to manage stress can this upregulating that you're talking about can that give me more energy in the morning can that help me to have better mood because I'm, you know, if I have mood issues. So there were lots and lots of questions. Now, of course, on this podcast, I love to encourage people to take action in their own lives, to feel empowered, to learn more about their own bodies, to learn more about health, to learn more about how they can achieve their goals, build their businesses, improve their lives, improve their health, improve their relationships. And so with all that in mind, I thought I'm going to do a uh, better, longer, deeper dive on this topic. And so today I've invited Dr. Sula Wingassen, who is a health psychologist who I know talks about these topics online and delivers really, really great information about this. So I've invited Dr. Sula to talk to us today about these topics, about stress and chronic stress, about the connection between the mind and the body, or the separation, should I say, when it comes to health and well-being. And also to talk to us about, of course, what we can do, not just acknowledging these things and saying, okay, well, the modern world is challenging. It's challenging for our physiology. It's challenging for our mental health and our physical health. What can we do about it? You know, at the end of the year, before we go into another year, what can we do? What actions can we take? How can we think and and take actions that are going to help us to optimize and to feel our best? So let's dive in to this week's episode. Dr. Sula, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Well, as I said, you know, there's so much in this topic, this idea of well-being for the modern world, even the word well-being. I think, you know, people might uh, hear that word and think of a yoga mat or a green juice or a candle. Mm. But we know that well-being is influenced 
and encompasses so many different things. It's our whole life. And so I think this idea of the separation between you've got your physical body, you know, people train the body, go to the gym, exercise, movement, okay, full stop. And then it's almost like we turn the page and we think about mental health and mind and mood and these things. And it's, it feels quite separate and quite divided. But what I really like about what you do and I think even being a health psychologist, I haven't really seen or heard this before. What I really like about your work and what you do and the way you present it is the way you connect those two things. And so you explain, I suppose, the connection between the mind and the thoughts and the emotions and the feelings and things like stress and the physiological impact that it has on our bodies, on our digestion, on our skin, on our sleep, all of that. So where to begin? I think... Where I'd like to start, as I mentioned, I talked about the nervous system. So I'd love for you to talk to us about what do you think people need to know when it comes to the nervous system? This, all of these topics I'm talking about, upregulating, downregulating. What do you think people need to firstly know and consider when it comes to understanding more about the nervous system? Yeah, well, I guess first off, just defining what we mean by that, right? Which I guess is, you know, in its physical components, our brain, our spinal cord, and the network of nerves throughout our body that are communicating back and forth to the brain. And that's really the the hardware that connects mind and body. So we can have sensory experiences that feed messages back up to the brain. And we have cognitive thought processes and emotional experiences that then message back down to the body. And it's a constant to or throw. So I suppose understanding that there there is this physiological basis that means that mind and body are always communicating in so many different ways you know chemically um and whatever we do whether that's a a mental event you know thinking really hard about something or whether that's a physical thing doing some exercise that's going to change our biochemistry and and potentially change our whole um homeostasis so I guess I want to make the distinction though that because it's so vast and there's so many different influences in the nervous system and how it functions, we don't need to then get caught up in micromanaging everything because that would just simply be an impossible task. But we can embrace the hope of it, which is there's so many potential avenues to create a positive influence. So we don't need to be like plugging loads of holes, but more like which which thing which instrument do we pick up to to have a positive impact Mm, yeah and i think for us to give people a really clear and obvious example i always think about public speaking so i'm someone who does a lot of public speaking and i've done it for such a long time and i've practiced it so i feel like i get less nervous i wouldn't say i don't feel nerves when i do public speaking but i feel less nervous and i'm able to kind of you know control that uh, i suppose physiological response and and deliver my talk but for some people I know that public speaking is almost just a fear a dread and they feel like you know it's the worst thing ever so I always say to people if you imagine before you are about to present before you're about to walk onto a stage or give a give a speech at a wedding something like that people understand that if you're just sitting there in your chair and nothing's changed in your environment you're not running around you're not moving but your heart rate might get you know, it might increase. You might start to feel clammy hands and you might start to sweat, but the room's not getting warmer. The temperature hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. The only thing that has changed is your mind counting down and thinking, I'm going to stand up in a minute and talk to a room full of people, but your body responds. So if you can, and I think so many people have had that experience and they know what it feels like. So if you know that just by thinking about standing up, 
and delivering a talk, your mouth gets dry, your hands get sweaty, your, pu- your breathing gets faster, your pulse gets faster. If those physiological things can happen just through thinking about speaking, then I suppose my question to you is, is it, if it's a two-way street, is it, am I right in thinking that there's things you can do to the body that are going to affect the mind in exactly the same way? So something that you might do like slowing down your breathing intentionally, for example, is that going to have an impact on the mind as well? Yeah, absolutely. And the the way that my treatment goes with people that I work with is we almost divide our, our process up into two streams. So the first stream is working with the body primarily in order to get more of uh, an understanding about how the body is affected by what's going on emotionally in our minds, but also by just the things that we're doing. And then being able to exert influence from the body up to the mind and this is really key i think to regulation because it's so intuitive when we're feeling worried or activated to try and think our way out of it and just you know that example that you gave when you're in a room of people and you're starting to feel nervous about talking you could talk yourself through that and be like it's okay nothing terrible can go wrong and i'm sure loads of people have tried that in lots of different ways but it doesn't really reduce that edge of what's going on physically because you're communicating with your cognitive brain to a real base emotional evolutionarily hardwired system and so to that end what we really need to do is work with the body to be able to regulate and then we can start using our thinking brains again but the the emotional brain and the nervous system kind of overrides that thinking brain when we're feeling you know, really dysregulated and activated and what have you. So it's really fundamental, I think, to be able to use your body first and foremost, and and then we can start working with cognitive processes. But I don't think that's an intuitive human experience because we're so used to using our brains to, to solve problems. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And that's the advice, isn't it, that we often get told or we might give to other people where we might say, you know, remember this or remind yourself of a time when whatever. And you're right. So if that's the case, what are some of those physical things? So if if someone is feeling the physiological effects of nerves, uh, what are some things you can do to help the body to respond and to calm? This is all going to sound truly, truly basic. And so one thing that I want to caveat, first of all, is that you're not trying to chase the feeling away you know you're still going to feel that adrenaline your palms are still going to be sweaty um you're still going to feel activated in some way but if you relate to this more as let me take the edge off the top so i've got a bit more control that's what you're aiming for otherwise you fall into the trap of you know let me really micromanage this whole entire experience and then that creates its own problems so if if the aim is just to take that top edge off activation The really basic first thing that is my go-to with everybody is regulating the breathing. So we know our in-breath and out-breath are related to our um, autonomic nervous system. So our in-breath is associated with that sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight arm. And the out-breath is associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest. So when we're anxious, we're breathing quite shallowly, quite usually, and quite quickly. And so that's much more sympathetic nervous system activation. So we can change that just by creating deeper in-breath. So we're breathing all the way down into our lungs, filling up the lungs. And we've got these receptors at the bottom of our lungs. 
that are activated when our when we feel our lungs right up with air, which then sends signals back to our brain to say, oh, we're safe, we're getting enough oxygen, which is one of the ways that our parasympathetic nervous system's activated by taking nice deep breaths. And the other thing is when we're exhaling, if we try and extend that out longer than the inhale, our out breath is associated with that parasympathetic nervous system activity. So this is like a really regulating thing on a physiological level to, to, to balance things out and calm things down a little bit. And just by doing that, you know, a few cycles over, you start to see that the body responds quite quickly. You're not having to micromanage that breath for the whole entire time that you're doing it. And that can just, you know, take that, that edge off. And the other thing that can go alongside that and that you're doing just by virtue of connecting your breath is getting back into the body. So trying to move your attention from the flurry of thoughts about what could happen, um, you know, what all of these anxious symptoms mean, what what's going to happen next, all of the catastrophes that your brain can easily go to when you're feeling anxious and try and come back to physically ground yourself in the body. So those are two foundational basics that I would say to do to try and take that edge off straight away Mm. yeah really really useful because as you said people might think oh that's basic breathe through your nose out through your mouth slow down your breathing but when you actually Mm -hmm. try it it's so different isn't it I often say to people do it right now you know I'll just say to people breathe in yeah fill your lungs fill your belly with air really feel like what it feels like to do a deep breath might be the first time all day that you've actually taken a deep breath and then breathe out like let it out and even just doing that three times it changes the way you feel and the example that I just gave was of course I suppose reasonable rational okay a lot of people might be fearful of public speaking so therefore this is the response however as we know sometimes anxiety stress adrenaline cortisol feeling that feeling of uh, panic or distress isn't always related to something right there in the moment that we can think about. So some people, for example, might wake up in the morning and before they've even got out of bed, they might start to feel this feeling of panic, anxiety and racing heart, cortisol, adrenaline. So in that instance, are these two tools and, and tactics uh, still useful? Is it the same same thing that you would suggest? Yeah, definitely. And I suppose what can easily happen is that initial thing of having the physiological symptoms of panic or increased cortisol for whatever reason can then get that you know worried thinking brain involved and we're like oh why are we feeling like this and we're looking for causes or we're trying to work out the best way to get rid of it and that really kicks off its own cycle that maintains that panic so it's really really key to try and circumvent that by first getting into the body and doing some of those grounding things and the other thing that I explore a lot with my clients is that racing heart feeling you know it's so common when we're feeling anxious but it it, it's so strong and you know for some people it really feels like you're having a heart attack or your chest is really tight and there's something else going on and so everything in our body is wired up to be like well focus on this you know something really bad could be happening and we worry because we can feel our heart rate so much that if we do any activity it's going to make things worse completely intuitive but actually it's probably going to be the opposite so experimenting with some gentle movement you don't have to run straight into you know high intensity exercise but whereas you might if you get it for example first thing in the morning and you've got that racing heart you might sit there for a while monitoring your heart what it means scared to move maybe 
I gently encourage people to get out of bed and see how it feels to just do some gentle movement, you know, using the breath as an anchor and um, trying your best to to adjust your focus of attention outside of the body in that case and mm. see what happens. Because we know that symptom monitoring and really getting over-focused on what's happening in the body that's uncomfortable can cause a feedback loop where our brain's really alerted to what's going on in our body and it causes more of that threat signaling and then you know the symptoms maintain and if we can just experiment with what happens if we move our attention away having grounded ourselves then we usually find that things come back to some sort of equilibrium again yeah yeah that's really really useful because you're right it probably doesn't feel like the first thing you're going to think to do if you've got a racing heart you might think oh yeah i'm not going to break a sweat and start doing exercise but exactly i think stretching moving breathing dancing running even singing i'm someone who i love to Mm. sing and obviously singing we know impacts our breath because often you're inhaling and exhaling and and the resonance in your chest so i think uh regardless of whether you think you're a good singer or not maybe uh have a little sing in the shower in the morning and and see how that impacts your your breathing and and you mentioned then uh, straight away you said about the connection the mind the body the connection and this is what I love about your work and your posts online as I said at the start between you know some people just they're talking about the physical body other people are talking about mental health and mind but that connection I think is really overlooked and really important so I've got quite a big question I suppose and topic for you because it's something that I've read about before quite a long time ago about visualization and it was talking specifically about healing the body and talking about how the thoughts that we think how much that actually can impact our physiology so for example if you went into an mri scanner and someone was scanning the brain and asking you to visualize a really juicy apple and they ask you to visualize biting into the apple and there's no apple there but just by thinking about it the parts of the brain that would I suppose activate saliva or taste or scent those parts of the brain light up so it's a really powerful thing to say okay if that's happening what happens when you think positive things about your body about healing your body and whether that's a physical condition a mental condition but of course I am not an expert and I feel like the last thing I want to do is say to people oh you know if you have a health condition just think yourself better because of course that's you know careless and dangerous but my question is I suppose how impactful would you say our thoughts are when it comes to the nervous system the physical body and potentially healing the body yeah again and you you mentioned it there you know how easy it is when we're discussing this kind of topic for it to be um, interpreted. In fact, I was talking with a client about this, exploring the mind-body connection and the importance of thoughts and what's happening in our body. That can make we, make us think, you know, if my mind has a potentially positive impact on my body, Equally, then, does it have a really negative impact on my body? And then if I'm thinking these negative thoughts, is that going to have a hugely detrimental impact on my health? So I want to set out the scene to begin with, which is there's so many different ways that we think, right? And um, it's not that every discrete thought that we have has a footprint in our biology, And it's not that when we have thoughts, just by virtue of having a negative thought about our health, that's not going to impact on our health. So we definitely don't need to be uh, micromanaging every thought that we have. We could have like 100 negative thoughts pop into our head and that's not going to have any impact whatsoever. But 
what I think is helpful is making the distinction between two kind of cognitive processes. So one is uh, a more heuristic type of thought that we are having subconsciously. So if I was going to make a cup of tea, I'd open the cupboard, I'd get out the tea bag, I'd put it in my uh, cup and I'd do the whole thing. And I wouldn't really have had to engage anything intentional in my brain. I'm still having thoughts, um, but I'm probably not having very many uh, active thoughts about the tea making process and I'm having probably quite passive thoughts about other things and none of that's really co uh, conscious if I get to the cupboard and the tea bags aren't there and then suddenly I have to switch into more intentional thinking then um that kind of thinking is conscious right and and then I've got some opportunity to intervene so why this is important is we are we have between 50,000 and 70,000 thoughts per day and the ones that we generally pay attention to are the ones that are threatening or tell us that we've got something to do we might have loads of neutral thoughts you know random songs that pop pop into our head random memories random reflections on something that we'll just completely zone out but because our whole nervous system is wired up to detect threat those thoughts pop to the top of our head um, and never more so than when we're ill or, you know, something that we want to do is being threatened, then those thoughts get prioritized. And um, those thoughts aren't harmful just by virtue of having them. But if we engage in thinking about them all of the time, and if we're making a lot of negative predictions based on them, and if we're modifying our behavior based on them, and if our mood state's constantly being altered by them, that's more likely to have an impact on our physiology and what happens, you know, directly um, based on, you know, the, the thought processes potentially, but also indirectly through how we modify our behavior. So uh, the comforting thing here, right, is that if we notice that we're having these negative thoughts and we're bringing some of that uh, thought stream conscious, A, just by virtue of doing that, we've got a bit more space and um, potential room for seeing that as a thought rather than a fact. And then that creates a bit more flexibility and it's less scary to our brain. Um, but B, then we create more potential choice of how we want to respond to that. And, you know, to, to use an extreme example for, for people with OCD, for example, what happens in OCD is people have these thoughts that are really scary and urgent and they feel they need to act on them. And that creates a lot of anxiety. And then there's a lot of engaging with that thought, you know, both behaviorally with compulsions, but also internally, like trying to counteract it or, you know, convince yourself that that's not the case. And the principle that we use in OCD is the, the same principles here is actually you take all the power out of that thought by acknowledging it and deciding to do something else, you know, and, and not give it its, its dues that it's going to happen. Um, so I guess that's a long <laughs> preface to your question, but it's just really important, I suppose, to understand that thoughts in themselves aren't that powerful if we're you know acknowledging them and noticing them but if they're just filling our mental landscape with all of these kind of negative predictions that we're not you know we're just passively 
having, um, then that's probably going to impact on our physiology in lots of different ways, right? By the emotions that they stir up in us mm. um, that then have an impact on our biochemistry and our nervous system, by um, the the kind of power of nocebo and placebo expectations changing, you know, those, those, uh, those processes in our body. Um, but the simple antidote is recognizing and then we can work with that. Yeah, well, that's this one you mentioned placebo, because that's what I was thinking about when you were talking and that difference between the passive thoughts, the thousands and thousands of thoughts that we don't really even notice versus the intentional uh, conscious. I'm focused on this. I'm thinking about this. And that really made me think about the placebo effect. And, you know, we know that in clinical trials when people are given you know some people might be given a pill that's got nothing in it and some or just sugar or something and others might be given a pill that tells them okay this is going to do x y and z and they study the two groups and they they know that just be by being given something and told this is going to for example give you more energy make you run faster you know perform better then the person steps out and goes for their run and they ran faster and they feel better and they go, oh my gosh, it's because I had that, you know, sports drink or that sports performance when actually they were given water. So we know the power of placebo, the power of the mind. And I think that it's, again, a positive thing. Of course there is, you know, you always have to think about, well, if that's the case, yes, can I think myself ill? But also how empowering and exciting to think, I can think myself well. I can, you know, focus intentionally on things that are going to, even because what comes after thoughts, words, and what comes after words, actions, behaviours. And we know that our words have power, our actions and our behaviours definitely do, the decisions that we make. If we can trace that back to a thought that says, for example, oh, I'm, I'm lazy, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, then what actions are going to follow those thoughts? Because if you're lazy and you're, you're exhausted and you're tired and fed up, are you going to choose actions that are going to boost and support your physiology so that's something that I think when I think about these topics and why I was keen to talk to someone like yourself is to understand I think I from my perspective I I suppose I'm not necessarily looking at okay the neurochemical reaction but I know that there's something more than just a feeling going on and that's what I suppose I want to share with people here is that okay what that example I just gave is like okay if I'm thinking I'm lazy I'm tired I'm exhausted I'm fed up I'm stressed are the words that I use and the actions that follow those thoughts going to help me? Are they going to make my life better? And so to flip that around, what could people start to, I think chronic stress is obviously something I wanted to talk to you about. That's a word that people say, isn't it? I say, I'm so stressed out. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I'm stressed. I'm stressed. They say it a lot. And so I guess maybe we could dive into a bit of that and what the, firstly, stress is something that is a part of life you know we can't we can't eliminate it or diminish it it's part of life but I think maybe if you could yeah explain to us I suppose the difference between stress which we can manage and which we should expect in life and chronic stress and what that does to the body yeah so like you say stress is just a part of life and it's not bad our our bodies are made to deal with stress respond to it and come back down to an equilibrium which I guess in the literature is called homeostasis so where everything's balanced out you know our, our hormones our immune system can be balanced and responsive um the 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 balance of kind of neurotransmitters all of that we all of these systems are nicely balanced out and then they can peak when we need them to and then they can come back down so stress acute stress isn't bad repeated stress isn't even bad um but it's when stress 
perseveres and there's no let up that it changes how the body responds to it and we then are less able to have that adaptive response to stress because either the peaks are too many and there's less reprieve in between them or our body starts to generalize and rather than after the the peak happens it comes down it kind of stays activated and we're in this state of hypervigilance and there's also the possibility that what can happen is that you know our body gets completely and i think you know that's probably where the term burnout comes from it, it gets burnt out so all of the resources that we had physiologically to deal with that stress is they're no longer there they've been depleted so we're kind of under underactive and we're not able to get that activation that we need to respond to these different things and there's so many different ways that chronic stress can be experienced and so many different things that can influence it from a consistently stressful demanding job where we don't feel that we've got the capacity to meet all of the demands because loads of people have stressful and demanding jobs, but that doesn't cause them chronic stress. But the distinction seems to be from the literature and the research, if you feel like you've got the capacity and the ability to cope with these things, then it's not quite so stressful. Our body will still respond with the stress response here and there, but it's not going to remain activated and get us really depleted. Um, and of course, like there's environmental stresses, like if you've got a, a really stressful home environment, if there's lots of environmental noise um, in London, you know, flats aren't very good soundproofing, they can be really difficult things with noisy neighbours. So many things can feed into um, the potential for becoming chronically stressed, um, including, of course, health conditions. One thing that I make the distinction of when I'm working with people is, again, we don't need to avoid stress in order to avoid chronic stress. In fact, mm. you know, we can be in quite stressful environments and not experience a chronic stress reaction in our body. What we need to do, though, is make sure that we have enough moments to offer replenishment and reprieve so you know i mean recovery this is I very like, I feel like my when you say reprieve i'm thinking as a maybe it's the athlete mindset of mine which is like okay yeah. when you train you have to recover when you compete you have to recover and i often say that to people with stress it's like exactly what you said so moments of stress moments peaks and troughs imagine the moment of stress is the competition day or the training but you can't compete every single day or you can't train every single day mm. so the moment of rest and recovery and reprise I think for a lot of people in the modern world they might work and work and work and work and they might manage lots of different things and maybe it's commitments and kids and relationships all of these things and then they think that a two-week holiday once a year in the summer is their moment to re to reprieve to rest to recover they go to a retreat and they go okay I'm gonna go to a retreat yeah. and then the rest is doesn't work you know it doesn't work so if we're hyper stimulated all the time if we are feeling okay I can kind of manage this stress but actually sometimes people say they can manage the stress because they're like yeah I, I'm I'm coping with it I'm a lot of people can function with the stress but it doesn't yeah. mean it's not impacting the body it doesn't mean for example if people are you know reliant on coffee to feel awake in the morning or if they sleep all night yet wake up feeling exhausted or if they have gut irritation and bloating or if they have skin breakouts or if their hair's falling out you know like these kind of things where they're like oh I can I can cope with my stress and it's like really because you might think yeah. you can and I'm not I'm not judging people because I've definitely 
had those experiences myself where I've been like, it's fine, I'm fine. And you're like, you look <laughs> like you need to go to bed. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think, um, right, I guess it's really helpful. We are trying to make people understand that stress isn't bad. It's not all bad. We have moments of stress and stress doesn't cause chronic stress as long as, I suppose, we create these yeah, buffers, these barriers, these boundaries, these times for rest and recovery. And what could some of those things be? Because it's not just sleep, is it, that can help us to rest and our nervous systems to rest? No, absolutely not. I've just finished a workbook actually about this exact topic. And one of the the principles that I talk about is that we're not, um, we don't, I think we're socialized to boom bust because of exactly that, you know, you, you work for three months or four months or whatever it's going to be. And then you have like a two week holiday and then you go back and you do a big work period and then you'll get Christmas off. And that is a really like boom bust thing. Keep going until you get this period of rest and then you don't have to do anything work wise. I mean, you still probably have to do lots around Christmas. Um, but it's not really terribly helpful to to maintain that bodily equilibrium and even if you think of the working week you know we chunk everything into the week and then the weekend we're meant to just relax um but for lots of us you know we might be wired by the weekend because we've been thinking about work all week and then you've got two days and then you're thinking of you know the monday horrors kind of thing for a lot of people so one of the key principles is trying to get into the habit of those mini moments of rest and reprieve throughout every single day and that doesn't have to be big chunks of time so you could be having a full working day it could even be you know a 10 hour working day but you could have 10 opportunities to get a bit of reprieve and that could be from little things like having a three minute breather to getting up from your desk and having a bit of a stretch those small things really do stack up if you think about the alternative as just being sat sedentary at your desk the entire time rushing uh, lunch and doing emails at the same time as opposed to having a bit of a slowed lunch getting up from your desk an hour later coming to sit down you're not going to lose lots of productive time and actually you probably find you're more productive by adopting this kind of thing so what I divided up in my workbook is trying to break down different types of rest as well there could be physical rest when you're feeling physically depleted whether that's because you've got symptoms or you've been training a lot physically and then of course your body needs to rest so your your rest is going to be physical you know backing off doing um, activity maybe or doing slower activity then there's going to be mental rest so if you've been using your brain a lot um, and having to do lots of meetings and do lots of deadlines and learning or whatever um, you've reduced your cognitive capacity so actually doing something physical might be quite restful for your overall body and and mind because you're getting out of that cognitive zone and you're getting more in your body um so you can kind of you know share the load and then i talk about emotional rest and um sensory rest so if you've been really overstimulated all day um doing lots of different things maybe that's from movement maybe that's from using your brain you might just need to be a bit stiller I think this is the one that people find hardest actually, Mm. you know, just having quiet time and you don't have to torture yourself with it. Just dip your toe in the water. It could be five minutes of just nothing and just seeing how that feels and allowing your body to settle back down to some kind of a baseline in that five minutes and then seeing where you go from there or going on a walk without, you know, headphones in or, you know, whatever it might be. 
And then emotional rest, I suppose, is when there's been a lot of emotional load. Maybe that's your meeting emotional demands from loved ones, or you've been having a lot of um, you know stress and your own emotional reactions to that. And then you might rely on one of the other kinds of rests to replenish you. So it could be like a, a um, doing a cognitive task, you know, numbing out from the emotions for a bit by doing a crossword or a Sudoku or, you know, I don't know, something else entirely, watching a film that you can really engage in. And I think what breaking up different types of rest does is it encourages you to check in with actually what's been depleting you and and what your body and mind need and how those things can coexist and balance each other out. Yeah, I really like this. I like this, you know, the different types of rest, sensory rest, emotional rest, physical rest. It makes sense because as we know, sometimes you can rest the physical body by laying on the couch or by sleeping and the mind can still feel drained or you can be emotionally depleted. And the sensory one I think is for the modern world, I think is the biggest challenge. I think people are sense have sensory overload 24 hours a day and then they never have yeah. sen- sensory rest. The only time they're not looking at a screen is when they're asleep. So I think sensory rest is is a big one. Uh, and I just really like the idea of actually thinking about not saying, okay, I suppose putting the focus on why do I need this rest? So why do I need sensory rest? Oh, because of this. Or when you just gave those examples, if you've been doing a lot of work on a screen, you know, processing, thinking, problem solving, then why do you need that kind of rest? And maybe the same when it comes to emotional rest. Why do I need that kind of rest? What's been going on for the last few months in my life? Mm. Um, So I really like this and I hope that people will take that and kind of reflect actually after this episode and think, what kind of rest do you need? Because the key thing for me as the listeners of this show, if they hear it every week, they'll hear me say is about, we all want to feel good. We all know how good it feels to feel good. We all want to have the energy when we wake up in the morning to pursue our goals, to, uh, you know, never mind feeling motivated. If you're exhausted, if you're depleted, it doesn't matter about motivation. You can't achieve the things you want to do, whether it's your personal goals, your professional goals, uh, writing a book, running a marathon, raising your kids. You can't do it if you don't rest, if you don't recover, if you are burnt out and overwhelmed and exhausted. So I really want people to, yeah, I suppose, take some parts of this conversation and think about how they can restore their own energy, how they can restore their nervous systems, how they can manage stress, not not eradicate it, but manage it in a way that's going to empower people to feel excited. Like I said, it's the end of the year. Think back over the year and think about how's my whole year been? Because a year goes so quickly. And I think often we forget the things that we've done. I certainly do. I had a conversation with someone this week and I said, oh yeah, gosh, in January we did this. And then, oh yeah, in April, I went to Japan with my son for the first time. And oh yeah, I ran the marathon. And oh, in the summer this happened. And you know, so much can happen in one year. And we don't always take a moment to consider it all, but then to give ourselves time to rest, different kinds of rest. I love this. I think at the end of the year, we all need to have like, I'm going to have sensory rest, I'm going to have emotional rest, I'm going to have physical rest and start the next year ready to roll, feeling good. Yeah, I'll send you the link, shall I? Because it's a free booklet, so your listeners might be interested. Please do. So yes, send the link. We'll put it in the show notes. Download that before the end of the year and take that well-deserved rest so we can start next year feeling great. I know I'm a bit, you know, preempting. I know it's only, you know, November, but (laughs) I feel (laughs) like... It's going quick. Yeah, it does go quick. (laughs) And it's interesting when you said about Christmas break, because for some people, Christmas break is maybe restful. But for so many, I think there's a pressure on it. There's a busyness. There's events, 
there's family to visit and sometimes that can be stressful let's be honest um kids are off school there's the pressure of doing activities and all the things you know I feel lucky to have a busy colorful wonderful home life but it's busy you know there's going to be loads of people in and out of this house through Christmas and uh, I think to be honest Christmas is it's not that restful I'll be honest I feel like I have to um I'm going to be saving some energy now for for that period yeah (laughs) store it up yeah I can relate to that 
I am. I'm going to. Yeah, thank you. Fab. And thank you so much for joining us. As always, I really appreciate the listens, the shares, everyone who uh, yeah, kindly recommends the show, rates and reviews. If you haven't already, please do that. That's how we get to reach more people and get more wonderful guests like Dr. Sula. And I will be back next week with another episode. Thank you. See ya. Thank you.